Sir Will. Yes? In the movie we are discussing today, one of the most ridiculous murder defenses I have ever heard of is conceptualized by ace reporter Hildy, in that somehow socialists talking about the idea of production for use led a man to commit murder because he was holding a gun. Well, that's what a gun is for. And I just wanted to ask, what are some of the other ridiculous defenses for murder that you have come across in movies? So I've been racking my brains about this because I'm sure that there are more absurd ones that I'm forgetting that are treated as good. Because a lot of what I'm thinking about is stuff like in Interstellar, when Matt Damon, spoiler for Interstellar, uh, that he's in it, (laughs) tries to kill Matthew McConaughey on that ice planet. And he's talking about how it's actually a really important and good thing. And I'm like, no, Matt Damon, this is clearly a bad idea. And his excuse basically is, uh, I don't want to help people on Earth, which seems bad. Was that really his excuse? Oh, yeah, because he'd gone like fully unhinged. Yeah, he just wants to get on a place where he can live a not terrible life, and he doesn't want to risk that by trying to contact Earth again. Right. The other one I thought of was just murder by death, where Alec Guinness insists that Truman Capote's daughter murdered herself, and very specifically insists that it was murder because she hated herself, and that's what led to murder. My first thought was to almost all of the defenses used in the cell block tango in Chicago. Oh, you know what? A great example. (laughs) Just all the way down the line, except for the one in Hungarian, are reasons to get mad, but I don't know about murder. Yeah, remind me what some of these are. So, Pop, he chews his gum annoyingly, so his wife shoots two warning shots into his head. One of them is, he ran into my knife. He ran into my knife ten times. Which is so good. And then there's Velma Kelly's, who's is just, I fully blacked out, and when I woke up, I was covered in blood. So obviously, I can't have committed murder of my sister and husband, who I caught in flagrante. There's something about that sequence that reminds me of Throw Mama from the Train, the Strangers on a Train adaptation with Danny DeVito, I think, and Billy Crystal. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it has the strangers on a train premise, like, if we each kill each other's hated person, then nobody will be able to trace it back to us. And I think Danny DeVito's thing is that, like, his mom is annoying, (laughs) and so therefore she needs to be killed so she'll stop annoying him. And Billy Crystal is mad that his ex-wife is a more successful writer than he is. Movies have a lot of people that jump to murder when simple sabotage would do, I feel. Yeah, I mean, the premise of that one is, like, the exciting possibility of, like, wow, like, a murder feels kind of dangerous and sexy, but I think we could get away with it. Again, just like in Rope, if your only motivation for trying to commit murder is to see if you can get away with it, you're not going to get away with it. But, like, what if we had a foolproof plan that nobody had ever thought of before? And then what if we shoved the body in a box and made his parents eat food on top of it? And we could sing a song about pies. That movie is messed up. I love it. Even if it is the implication that because he is gay, he is a killer. Yeah, it's got some interesting turns in there. But great performances all around. Anyway, should we start discussing this movie that leads to, honestly, more insane in terms of defense than anything else we've discussed? 
Well, oh, are you going to say that some of the things people say in this movie don't make any sense? I have no idea what you're talking about. I think it's just when you're talking that quickly that maybe you wind up saying as many illogical things as a normal person. But in the span of a 100-minute movie, there's a lot more in there. I mean, the point of this movie was, let's have as many words squeezed in as we can. Yeah. Not all of them can be gems. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important questions facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And does this movie star the closest thing I have to a famous relative? Spoiler alert, yes. And also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or obviously (laughs) ill-advised. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the classic 1940 screwball comedy, His Girl Friday. This movie stars Rosalind Russell, who is my third cousin. That's so close. Is my great grandmother's cousin, and there's a family resemblance to all of the women on my mom's side of the family. That is kind of it makes it interesting to watch. Yeah, I'll bet that's weird. It was cool though, and then obviously Cary Grant as well. Well, yeah, of course, you know that guy, that who guy. is not interesting to look at at all. No, of course not. But this movie was very in the vein of bringing up baby. And I wanted to get your comparison. I liked this movie a lot more. Me too. Besides the fashion, which is truly iconic. Oh my, that hat! this movie, I think it managed to be silly in a very entertaining way where I didn't find... Well, I guess the main difference is I didn't find Hildy as entirely insufferable. I think the key to this one, and also I would throw What's Up Doc in there as well. Yeah. I think the key to making this one work for me more than those two movies is that Hildy and Walter, while like there's manipulation going on, and especially Walter manipulating Hildy throughout the movie, it feels like their frantic energy is a part of who they are, and like they would be frantic even if the other person weren't there. Whereas in those movies... I feel bad for the people who have to be around either Barbara Streisand in What's Up Doc or Katherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby. I'm like, this poor person is just being ripped to shreds. Whereas in this movie, I'm like, oh, they are equals going back and forth at each other. And that's fun. I think that is a good observation as to why this movie works is the equal energy between them while one of them tries to deny having that level of screwball makes it more interesting because (laughs) the straight man just feels so out of place in those other movies where it takes you completely out of it. And in this movie, the straight man is Bruce, Ralph Bellamy, who is pointedly out of place. He does not fit in this world, and the movie is aware of that. Right, and he's really not in it very much either because they have a big scoop to publish by the next morning i guess they want to get it on the front page if you will boo (laughs) in case you're wondering this movie is based off of a i don't know if it was a hit a hit play called (laughs) the front page from the late 20s yeah the front page was written by ben hecht and charles MacArthur, who had been reporters like you said it was written in the late 20s. It was adapted into a movie pretty quickly. There's like a 1931 version of it. So this coming out in 1940 is pretty fast for another version of that play. But they made quite a big change for this one. 
Yes. The big change is that the character of Hildy is a woman, which is not the case in the play. Right. <laughs> I have a feeling that in the play, which I haven't read or confirmed, they are not ex-husbands. <laughs> no. So the play is entirely set in the newsroom overlooking the gallows. And in that one, the character of Hildy, who is a male reporter, shows up with his female fiance to tell his editor, like, hey, just wanted to let you know, I'm getting married and I'm getting out of the business. And so it's the pressure of the editor trying to get him to stay on and Hildy trying to get out of it. So the movie was originally done in 1931. It was done again in 1974 with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. And there have been a couple of other movies sort of inspired by it, but... This one takes that twist of still having the editor and the reporter, but they are also ex-husband and wife. Is the play a comedy? Um, It's got some comic elements, but n- uh, yeah, it's a comedy. Okay, because I f- would find it interesting if they had turned a drama set in a room overlooking a gallows into a screwball comedy out of nowhere, but I wouldn't put it past anyone involved. Yeah, no, I mean, you could see this crew doing that, but it was a comedy, and actually... You mentioned earlier that this movie's goal was to speak faster than anyone had ever spoken. The previous record was the film adaptation of the front page. I guess reporters famously talk fast. Yeah, and you know, they're also kind of scummy. You know, in the dark ages of journalism, when reporters would do just about anything to get a story. That opening title card was so funny. It was demanded by the Hayes Code office. Was it really? Yeah, because they didn't want the suggestion that this important industry was super immoral. I mean, it is in a way true that it is set in the past because by 1940, the U.S. didn't have any public executions anymore. But it is funny that that was a demand of the production code. It is ridiculous because, you know, reporters are probably still doing the same shenanigans in 1940, but they were all quite scummy in this movie. Yeah, I kind of love it. I also, for the most part, like that. For the most part, they're not, like, doing too much shady stuff to get the story. It's mostly them competing with each other, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of fun. Well, I mean, hiding an accused murderer from the law is a little shady to get the scoop. It's a little shady. I think by that point, though... The law already knows that he has been pardoned and is choosing to ignore it. Yes, it is true. Everyone is terrible. There's not a really good person in this movie, except for maybe Bruce. (laughs) Maybe Bruce. I do love that in this movie, there is a woman who is trying to you know quit a job and become a stay-at-home mom and settle down into domestic life. But the point of the movie is, This woman is so good at her job that she'll never be able to give it up and that it's good that she stays in the business. She loves it too much and the movie basically is like she should be who she is. Right. This movie is not punishing a career woman, which is still rare in a very popular genre that is churning out hit after hit every year to this day. You're talking about what? Superhero movies? Christmas movies. Oh, yes, of course. No, superhero movies aren't as bad at punishing women for daring to leave the home. I think Christmas movies are the last holdout where that is a fairly staple part of the story. Well, yeah, of course. How dare you leave your small town? Yeah, how dare you want to get a job? Look, city folk just don't get it. Christmas is a 24-7, 365 thing. So, like we said, this is an adaptation of the play The Front Page. And 
It's directed by Howard Hawks, who we talked about before because he directed Bringing Up Baby. And his original pitch for this movie was just to remake the front page with Cary Grant. Because he's like, hey, I've worked with Cary Grant. He's great. Everybody loves the front page. His original idea was just to do that with Walter Winchell playing the editor, which I think is a cool idea. And allegedly, during auditions, Hawks' secretary would read the Hildy Johnson lines just to keep the auditions going. And Hawks decided that he liked the vibe of having a woman read those lines. So then they rewrote the script to make the character a woman. I'd buy that as happening. I mean, I would also buy that that didn't happen and it was made up to give a fun spin for Hedda Hopper to publish about the choice. That's the thing. It's one of those stories where you're like, this could be true. It matches with a thing that does happen in the process of making a movie. But studios weren't exactly known for being honest in 1940. There's a lot of myth-making. Very conscious. So uh, it's adapted by Charles Letterer, Ben Hecht, who co-wrote the play, did do some uncredited work on the movie. Fun notes about those guys. Ben Hecht, in addition to having been a reporter, won the first ever Academy Award for screenwriting for a movie called Underworld in 1927, which I assume featured Kate Beckinsale because that, you know, that's been around for a while. (laughs) It's interesting to think about how different the screenwriting award was from 1927 to like the third Academy Awards in 1929. Yeah, Underworld is a silent movie. Right. I mean, imagine comparing a talky script and a silent script for the same award. I would like not to. <laughs> They're just entirely different art forms. Yeah. Um, the only credited writer, like I said, was Charles Letterer, who also wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Mutiny on the Bounty, and the original Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, great movie, highly recommend. Well, I was going to say, something that you might find interesting is that Letterer's parents died when he was pretty young, so he was raised by his aunt, Marion Davies. That's wild. Right? That's crazy. Also, another fun twist, Rosalind Russell, famous for playing an eccentric aunt. Mame. Of course. Who, doesn't she help raise a child? I haven't seen Mame. I also have not seen Mame. It is about a man being raised by his eccentric aunt. All right. I'm wondering if it is written by the same person. No. It is a Compton and Green film. Oh. Speaking of Rosalind Russell, though, she was notably, like, everybody's last choice for this role. Howard Hawks had initially wanted Carol Lombard, who he'd worked with before, but she was not contracted with any studio, so she would have been too expensive as an independent. And just, like, every major actress, Irene Dunn, Gene Arthur, Ginger Rogers, Catherine Hepburn, like, all turned down the movie. That's it. interesting. Why did they turn it down, do you know? Just because they didn't like the script? Um, or... Yeah, so, in particular, multiple people who turned it down early thought that the Hildy character was much less well-written than Walter, which Rosalind Russell agreed with. She actually, because Howard Hawks encouraged a lot of improv on set. He's like, just keep the dialogue rolling. So Rosalind Russell secretly hired a writer to punch up her dialogue so that she could improvise better lines on set, but they were actually ones that had been written ahead of time. That is a boss move. Isn't it Good awesome? for her. That is a power move that I fully respect. Apparently, Cary Grant figured out that's what was going on and sometimes would greet her like, ah, oh, what are you going to think up today? <laughs> I mean, if you are dealing with an underwritten character and you have the chance to improve your lines, obviously go for it. Yeah. She's very good in this, though. She's awesome in this movie. I'm surprised that she was the last choice. 
Yeah, again, one of those stories where it's like, it's probably true, but who knows? She heard, like, on the train to town for her audition that she had been, like, the 15th choice for the role from, like, a New York Times article or something. So then she, out of spite, basically, (laughs) went swimming before the audition so she would show up with wet hair and, like, looking kind of like a mess. Good for her. Yeah. Make you proud to be a third cousin. Oh, yes. I can't imagine anyone else pulling off that clashing striped outfit. It's so great. It's so good. The movie opens. She walks in the door and she is wearing a striped suit, skirt suit, with a zigzag hat. And this is in black and white. So these are different The only colors. The only colors. And on the hat, the black stripes are thicker. But on the suit, the white stripes are thicker. So everything is clashing and it should not work. The hat also is this like tall, skinny, like stovepipe thing with like a wide brim just in the front it's crazy and i love it and i want it and i think it's it would be a such very a fun halloween look. costume you should definitely do that for halloween and just get nick to dress up as cary grant like wear a suit <laughs> just a suit who yeah. did the costumes for this it's not on the wikipedia page so who could tell you not i <laughs> So yeah, this is turning out to be much more difficult to find than I expected. I went to the TCM page for His Girl Friday, and the only costume credit they have is for gowns for Kalloch. K-A-L-L-O-C-H. This is an era where there was an Academy Award for costumes, so you'd think they would credit their costume designer. You would think. Oh, there is a man, uh, Robert Mero the III, often known by his professional mononym, Kalloch. Who is a fashion That's designer, a great name. He designer. should go by his whole name. Yes, but it makes an impact if you're just Kalak. I suppose. I'm guessing Beyonce got the idea from him. <laughs> he was um, widely considered one of America's top fashion designers in the late 30s. Well, he's certainly the top combiner of coat and hat on Rosalind Russell. Oh, <laughs> her outfit is on his Wikipedia page. Fantastic. I'm so pleased to hear it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> What? The first line of his personal life section is, Calic had an unusually close relationship with his mother. Oh, boy. That is not what you want yours to start. It also just could mean so many things. You know, it could be completely normal relationship, but it's Wikipedia, so someone could have been like, wow, this is odd, and just changed it to start with that. Yeah, boy. Well, if you know what was going on with... uh. Kalak and his mom tweet at us with the hashtag Mother Kalak. That is spelled K-A-L-L-O-C-H. Hashtag Mother Kalak. Her other looks in this movie were good, but nothing stood out like that one. There was never one as great as that. Like, she wears this other hat that's like a perfectly normal hat, and I was like, in any other movie I would have said, oh yes, a hat, and now I am annoyed. I know, it's a letdown, honestly, when she changes her clothes. So, uh, His Girl Friday premiered at Radio City Music Hall on January 11th, 1940. It opened wide a week later. It was a hit of some magnitude. It's always hard to tell these things with box office numbers in 1940, which are often made up. But it is quite well regarded. It was added to the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress in 1993. It's number 19 on the AFI comedy list. And, you know, it's adapted from the play the front page, but His Girl Friday has been adapted for the stage twice in its own right. I mean, they're different enough that... Yeah, it works. With the 
you know, fundamental change of Hildy that a new stage adaptation makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I am much less interested, honestly, in the other version because I really like this terrible relationship that is the center of the movie. Yeah, I like it a lot. I'd be interested to see the others because they're pretty well regarded as well. Yeah, but I can. I can. Imagine I do like it that it's a romance here, a very different it? movie. So it would be interesting to see, but I will get into it because it is the center of this film. But their toxic back and forth is so entertaining. It's fun to watch. Yeah, and I just imagine not having seen the front page that. If you turn Hildy into a man, this becomes a very masculine story where it's a very much about like posturing and competition and things like that. Right. And it's about the idea that I assume it's probably centered on the idea that the news is the most important thing, which this That's movie is too. Yeah. It's less of a you should end up with someone who has the same passions as you and more screw women. Your true love is the news. You got a nose for news, man. What are you going to do? Deny your nose? Hashtag deny your nose. <laughs> that feels like a marketing slogan for like poopery. Or a discount nose job. <laughs> Hashtag deny your nose. I denounce my nose because I have a terrible sense of smell and I would love for it to improve. Um, I feel like my sense of smell is not amazing, but it's mostly because my nose is like always stuffed up. I think that's partially what's going on with me. I asked my mom, and she was like, you've never been able to smell anything because I was that kid that was allergic to everything. Oh, that checks out. I got one of those allergy shots where they do like 50 pricks on your back, and I came back positive for all of them. What? <laughs> yeah, but not nothing is severe enough that it was like a pr- real problem. It was just, I have such low-level allergies to all airborne allergens, I guess. Yikes. Have you not seen those tests? No, I have not seen those tests. Just poke you in the back with common allergens, and they start with six on the arm of the most common, and then they go to the back. It was just like... This sounds like clockwork orange business. Yeah, it's not a great system, but I don't think there's a better one besides ensuring that this kid is in a sealed bubble and then slowly introducing allergens, I guess. Yeah, you could be like the Bubble Boy from Seinfeld. Also, the movie The Bubble Boy. Yeah, but I like the Seinfeld one. Yeah, I have been taking allergy meds every day for pretty much my whole life. All right, then. It did mean that when I found out a common way of figuring out you have COVID is to lose your sense of smell, I was kind of like, ah, f***, how am I going to be able to tell? (laughs) Yeah, that is not ideal. Um, speaking of all of this nose business, though, Billy Gilbert, who plays my favorite character, Joe Pettibone, according to Wikipedia, is known for his comic sneeze routines. That is not a surprise based off of his character of Pettibone. He did a lot of comedy, like, with the Three Stooges. He is also, on the sneezing subject, the voice of Sneezy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, I mean, you have to. If there is a comedian famous for sneeze routines how are you going to not cast him as a character named sneezy it's almost required all of the side characters in this movie are so wild i love that walter just like has a thief on payroll i know it's insane imagine just having someone that you 
rely on. He actually has two shady characters on the payroll. Because as soon as he needs an attractive woman, he gets one of those like that too. Yeah, it's like a dirty, rotten scoundrel situation where he's just got a little army of people to help out with stuff. I mean, what can you say? It's a time with skeevy reporters doing anything they can for a story. It's the dark age of journalism. It's the dark age of journalism. I mean, when this movie was written, it really was the dark age of journalism, because wasn't it full yellow press in the late 20s? I mean, it's not as bad in the late 20s as it is in, like, the 1890s. That's fair. It wasn't causing wars. Right. Oh, my God. Yellow journalism. Mank. (laughs) Mank! Which is more this period than that period. I know. But whenever I think of Hearst now, I just think, Mank! Anyway, should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yeah, let's do it. There's uh, a lot of weird stuff to cover. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a film, whether it's as tiny as it is in National, as tiny as it is in Night at the Museum, to as grand, National Treasure would have worked too. National Treasure would have worked too, or as grand a love story as this film. We will get it and discuss it. Will, what is point number one? So point number one, at the beginning of the movie, after we've been informed that it's set in the dark age of journalism, Hildy shows up in that great suit and that great hat, bringing along her new fiancé, Bruce. Oh, Bruce. Yes, I wish you hadn't done that, Hildy. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fella lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. Nonsense. You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words mumbled over you by a judge. Bruce, who seems like a perfectly nice but hapless guy who has an unusually close relationship with his mother. <laughs> not untrue. <laughs> yeah, which is not to say there's anything wrong with that relationship. It's just unusual. We'll talk about her more later, but I could have sworn that actress that played the mom I had seen before, and I looked her up, and it's like, no, she just looks identical to every angry old woman character of this era of filmmaking. It feels like she probably sang opera in a Marx Brothers movie at some point. There's so many actresses that look like this at the time. So, Bruce and Hildy are clearly sort of smitten with each other. She's like, oh, I just need ten minutes, and he goes, ten minutes is too long to be away from you. She's going across the news floor. It's clear that everybody knows her. And she goes to the editor's office to talk to Walter. And it's clear pretty quickly that Hildy is his ex-wife. And they've been separated for like five and a half months. Yeah, the time frame is quite quick on all of it. Right. It's pretty clear early on that he still wants to be married. At one point when she's like, oh, are you going to ask me to sit down? He's like, ah, come and sit on my lap. I did find it interesting that it was not a he has to rediscover his feelings for her too situation. It is he is still actively in love with Hildy, and it seems that he has been throughout the whole separation. Right. It feels most of all like Hildy is frustrated because, uh, as we learn in this scene, he broke off their honeymoon to go cover a mine collapse. And it feels like she was frustrated enough by that that she's like, I need to get away from you and out of the newspaper business. Which leads to, like, the extreme reaction of, like, no, I'm just going to be a housewife, which she clearly doesn't really want to do. You can feel it even at the beginning, I think, that she is trying to convince herself as well as him that this is what she wants to move out to Albany, settle down, have kids, become a housewife, because she is very much romanticizing it. 
Yes. Where she's like, if this happens, all of my problems will be solved. Right. Bruce is never going to leave our honeymoon to cover a mine collapse. He's an insurance salesman, so I guess the most exciting thing he'll do is, I don't know, stay at, at the office late some days. I don't know and what sell insurance, life insurance salesmen's yeah. do. He, he specifically sells life insurance. Right, which is interesting because that seems to be the main type of insurance. Like when I hear insurance salesman, I would immediately assume healthcare, but they all jump to life insurance. Health insurance isn't a thing yet. Oh, that's so Health weird. insurance is invented in the U.S. during World War II. That's so weird. So it really is just like life insurance yeah. and fire. I love the detail that at one point during the course of their divorce, he hired a skywriter to try to win her back. How long do you think they were married for? I don't know. In an early version of the script, the movie started with the two of them in divorce court, with the judge making a comment that implied it was their third time getting divorced, which I kind of like. <laughs> I'm into that. I kind of wish they had done that. But, like, I get from a screenwriting standpoint, like, it's better to have us learn all this information over the course of the scene in Walter's office. Right. But I can also easily imagine this couple marrying and divorcing five times. Right. So, anyway, while they're in the office, Walter tries to get Hildy to cover the story of the execution of this guy, Earl Williams. And he very openly is like, hey, you know, maybe if you cover this story, you'll fall in love with the business and you'll fall back in love with me. And she's like, no, I won't. I'm getting married tomorrow. She has to take the sleeper train at 6 p.m. And that is one parallel to bringing up baby. It is the thing of like, oh, the marriage is tomorrow. Like, it is immediate. Which also says something, we talk a lot about, like, different timelines for relationships in different time periods. She met Bruce while, like, on vacation since her marriage to Walter fell apart. So they've known each other for max five months? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they knew each other for, like, two months and then were engaged to be married. Hildy does not seem to make only sound judgment. Oh, really? Oh, you think that, huh? I think that... This movie does a good job of not being set in any real city. because I when, assumed it was New York. So they were talking about Albany, but even in the late 1920s, you would not need a sleeper train to Albany, New York, from New York City. And I think they mentioned New York City at another point. That could be true. I just was struck in particular by the number of trains that left for Albany. It is weird that there are that many trades. I don't know. Maybe I thought it was New York, too, but I think they mentioned it not being New York at some point because all of the newspaper names lack a city name. It is just the Morning Report and yeah, the Journal. The Post and, and the Herald. And, I mean, the, the play is set in Chicago, so we could say it's Chicago if we want to do that. I mean, it has to be a big city. And it can't be to have that the, many newspapers to have that many newspaper. And it can't be in the South because, as Hildy says, very uncomfortably, the colored vote is very important in this city. Right. So the idea that black people are voting puts it in very few specific regions at the time. Even fewer in 1928 when the play is written, because the play also depends on the existence of a black policeman. Right. That is very interesting. The racial dynamics of this movie are very odd. And entirely unexplored. I would enjoy a actual investigation into the, like, a hard-hitting drama about this case and the corrupt mayor who is at war with the governor trying to be reelected. 
you know what this movie needs. What? It needs to be this movie, but also Shaft should be in it. But Shaft is on the case at the same time. Right, and they intersect occasionally. It is interesting because I was rooting, in a sense, for Earl Williams because I don't think anyone should get the death penalty. And it does feel like it kind of sets you up to be like, well, it seems like he might be insane. Right, but at the same time, he doesn't seem actually... He does strike me as someone that committed murder of a policeman. Yeah, he does. So I think it's good that he is, in the end, his sentence is commuted by the governor because I don't think anyone should die by public hanging, which were over by the time the movie was made, but not when the play was written. Yeah, I think that some of the best possible evidence for his insanity is maybe like the Molly Malloy business, which I still feel like I don't totally have a handle on. Who is Molly Malloy? I never got it. She's his Molly Malloy is a woman, and Williams thinks that they're in love, and she definitely knows him, but it's unclear beyond that. I mean, she must have feelings for him. She throws herself out of a window for him. Yeah, it's very strange. And the movie, like, goes out of its way to be like, no, she is definitely dead. All of the background stuff in this movie is truly bonkers. Yeah, you got the mayor throwing out the commutation. He's like, we're gonna kill this guy. Because he needs to get reelected because he depends on the colored vote, which is just, like, such a weird concept. I was shocked to hear about that, honestly, in the 20s. I guess it's, like, machine politics still. Yeah, especially in some of the big cities. There's a pretty big machine in St. Louis, uh, in New York still. Weird. So that that makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, the politics of this movie are fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the mayor... Tries to bribe Joe Pettibone by what? Offering to make him a notary? Yeah, just giving him a good job and a steady salary in the city. Anyway, we should get back to the romance. Yeah, I know. But all of the background stuff is so interesting. It's super interesting. Okay, so Walter is trying to get Hildy to come back and cover the story. He insists on being introduced to Bruce and then invites himself along with them to lunch. Point two is lunch. Well, you're getting something else, too, Bruce. You're getting a great newspaper man. No orchids, Walter. One of the best I ever knew. Sorry to see you go. Darn sorry, Hildy. I'd like to believe you meant that. Yeah, I think it's noteworthy in talking about him inviting himself along. Like, if one character is the aggressive, pushing the limits, Barbara Streisand, Catherine Hepburn, screwball character, it's Walter. But it doesn't feel quite so abrasive because Hildy is talking just as quickly and with just as much confidence. Right. Both of them are talking over Bruce entirely, but she is able to hold her own against Walter. So it's not just Walter like yelling at both of them for a whole bunch. Right. Whereas in those other movies, the other character was always being like beaten down. Every other character was just repeatedly beaten down in those movies. But in this, it's two people beating down a third party. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> Which is funnier somehow. <laughs> I mean, I think the fun of it is we're watching them play a game together. You can tell that these two are like, in a way, they are destined to be together and they are destined to repeatedly divorce. Because this is all a game to them. The negotiating back and forth, like, all right, oh, I'm sure that I can entice her into covering this story. She's like, fine, I'll cover the story, but you have to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy. That's so much money. So that Bruce will get a nice fat commission. Because Bruce makes 5000 a year. 
and his commission on this check alone is one thousand dollars. So yeah. that is truly wild. And it goes this to Hill and it goes to Hildy. Right. Yeah. Walter insists on his, his policy covering Hildy. Uh according to the inflation calculator, it would be a one point eight five million dollar policy. I mean that feels right with how they talk about it. Right. But he is a newspaper editor. <laughs> Well, this is in the dark ages of newspapers, and I'm sure he's, like, getting money in. Maybe he gets a cut of whatever his thief steals. Well, I assume he has to pay the thief. Yeah, I assume he pays the thief, but then still gets a cut. Like, so the thief is salaried, so everything else is bonus. Ah, I love that he's able to scrounge up, like, $500 of counterfeit bills in 20 minutes. Yeah, it's so good. And again, it's kind of like, why does he have all that counterfeit money? Because he is just a thief for hire for the journalism game. Because it's the dark age of journalism. The dark age! Oh my god. Um, Speaking about this lunch scene, the lunch scene took four days to shoot. It is one of the scenes where they are speaking most quickly. Just cutting each other off. This is one of the earliest movies where the characters interrupt each other a bunch. There were moments at the lunch scene where I thought it was getting a little too interrupty because I was losing the thread. I mean, part of the thing there too is that because of all of the like fast dialogue jumping around and jumping back and forth and everybody talking over each other to stop the audio from getting mushy instead of just using one boom mic, they had several different mics stationed around, but they didn't have multi-track recorders at the time, so they couldn't have all of those microphones recording at once. So someone had to sit at a switchboard and turn each mic off and on, like, on cue as things were going during the scene. That's crazy. I can't imagine how fast that person was working. Yeah, at some point, there were, like, over 30 different switches that they had to go back and forth on. How? Oh my, that's crazy they talk so fast in that scene. Yeah. Characters in this movie average roughly 240 words per minute. In most movies, characters average about 90. Jesus Christ. I think I mentioned this. Hawks was very determined for this to be the fastest speaking movie in history up to its point. The front page from 1931 had the record and he held a screening of the two movies side by side to prove that his was faster. What a weird accomplishment to aim for it feels like those people who are just like we are gonna break the guinness record we are gonna make the world's largest bowl of soup and why are you <laughs> doing this because we like soup, you know why why do anything why go to the moon we build the world's biggest bowl of soup not because it is easy but because we were hungry and had poor planning all of that food goes to waste i'm assuming these are very wasteful exercises I do know the world's largest tomato fight. I think it, like, raises money for something. I mean, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's in somewhere in Nevada. They have a big fight using tomatoes that California farms don't ship out for use elsewhere. Well, that's honestly a good use of them if they're just going to get thrown away. Anyway, back to lunch. All right. So they have lunch. They make this deal. Hildy will cover the story. And in exchange... Walter takes out a comically large life insurance policy on himself. Right. And Hildy demands that she hold on to all of the money. Which is smart because Walter has a thief on staff who is rolling in counterfeit dough. Oh, she has to make up all all these scams about like, oh yeah, journalist superstition, keep your money in your hat. Yeah. Is that why she took all the money from him? I'm certain that's why. I feel like it was never super clear. 
I think it's always implied that she assumes at some point Walter will manage to con Bruce out of holding on to the money. I mean, yes. Very believable. Which sort of takes us to point number three. I just want to throw out there that the first time that my fiance's ex got me arrested, I think I would have some questions and would remove myself from the situation. By arrest number three, Bruce should really (laughs) not like Hildy anymore. Yeah, so Bruce gets arrested three times in one evening. Where do you think you're going? I'm going after Mother and I'm going to get Bruce out of jail. Walter, why did you have to do this to me? Get Bruce out of jail? How can you worry about a man who's resting in a nice, quiet police station? Well, this is going on. Hildy, this is war. You can't desert me oh, now. Oh, Walter, will you get off that trapeze? You've got your story right over there on the desk. Go on, smear it all over the front page. Joe William, captured by the Morning Post. I covered your story for you, and I got in a fine mess doing it. Now I'm getting out. And all of this is staged by Walter to prevent Hildy from leaving on the first, the 4 p.m., then the 6 p.m., then the 9 p.m. trains. Because Walter needs her to stay and cover the story, and there are all these twists and turns that develop to the story when Williams breaks out and is on the run. And so he keeps coming up with reasons to arrest Walter. Like, I know there's the one with the counterfeit money. I feel like that's the last one. The first one is Louis plants a stolen watch on Bruce. Right. And after this one, Hildy is the most upset, I'd say, because this is the one where she has written a story calls Walter, tells him, I have written the story which I promised, but I did not promise I would give it to you. And she tears it up and says, I'm out of here. And then the second arrest, Walter hires a attractive blonde to claim that Bruce, like, felt her up or something. Something like that, yeah. Uh, some crime of a sexual nature that the production code office surely would not let them specify. Right. But Hildy, for that one, I love that Hildy catches on so quickly, where she's just like, is she unnaturally blonde? Yes, that's Walter's go-to woman. (laughs) Right. Which also implies there are others. Like, he's got a network. So, that's arrest number two. There's more shenanigans. Williams breaks out. Hildy protects him in exchange. We have all of the Molly Malloy business in here, speaking of romance. Yeah, and then the third arrest, well, first, Bruce's mom has shown up, Louie kidnaps Bruce's mother. Bruce's mom clearly, even before this, does not think much of Hildy. No, she hates Hildy from the get-go, so I don't think she was too upset when Hildy did not make it to the 9pm train at the end. But in the midst of all this, you know, while... Bruce is getting arrested over and over again. I think the really important thing that's happening, you know, even as like Hildy and Walter are harassing each other and going back and forth, is that we get to see how much Hildy loves journalism, where she literally cannot resist the opportunity to go and find out what's going on. There's one point where a fire alarm, like a fire bell starts going off, and she immediately is like, oh, wait, what's going on there? And has to remind herself, no, I'm not a journalist anymore. Like, she can't turn it off. And everybody else in the newsroom, all these reporters for other papers, are like, Hilda, you're the best. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, she's clearly the most motivated, all, all the journalists, too. Because they are all just playing cards and stealing leads from each other. Which I think helps me to root against the relationship that she starts with in a way that I don't in those other screwball comedies. Because it's so clear that Hildy does not want that life. Right, you're not rooting against Bruce. You're rooting against the idea of her leaving journalism. Right. 
and this does bring us to point four where Bruce confronts Hildy as she is writing up the story. Because at this point, he's looking at maybe making the last train to Albany, the, not, the nine o'clock train. And she's insisting she's got to stay, like, just push a little longer, push a little longer. And this is when he accuses her of, you're not going to stop doing this. I love, at one point, he says, you never intended to be decent and live like a human being. <laughs> she just wants to be a journalist. It's the dark age of journalism. It's Journalists aren't human beings. Journalism. Well, not in the dark age. They had to come out into the light. Right. So Bruce, after his mom, and the has light was kind of yellow for a bit. After his mother has been rescued from Louis's evil clutches, he makes his way to the train, and he's getting on the train, and Hildy is click clack clipping, typing away, and then this is where the mayor shows up, and Pettybone comes back and tells in front of journalists, like you try to bribe me and I say no because I have a good wife who would be sad. I love Joe Pettibone. He looks exactly like a man who would be known for his comic sneeze routines. Oh, very much so. Yeah, and it's just, he's like a delivery guy for the governor who was sent with the commutation and the mayor and the sheriff, as Mark said, tried to bribe him into saying that he never delivered it. And Hildy and Walter are able to use their new blackmail to convince the mayor to, you know, actually let Williams go free, and basically they're going to lead a recall campaign against him. Yeah, which seems which great. brings us to point five. Hooray, the story is done. Look, honey, can't you understand? I'm trying to do something noble for once in my life. Now get out of here before I change my mind. Come no, on. Walter, it's tough enough now. just a minute. Well, send the fellow away. He'll be ready when you get in. Come on. Who wrote the story? And Walter then in what feels like kind of a lovely moment, tells her to go after Bruce. Like, go try and catch the train and go and live that life. Like, she wrote the story for him, and now he's saying, like, go ahead and do what you want to do. Get get out of (laughs) here! Are you doing, like, a Harry and the Hendersons? Yes, he is trying to push her We don't want you anymore! (laughs) It's for your own good! But she basically calls him out and is like, you're only saying this so that I stay and stay with you. And he says, like, no, I'll finish the story, go. He tells her goodbye and kisses her. And it seems like that's going to be the end of it. But then Bruce calls because he's been arrested again. For having counterfeit money because Hildy spent all of their money. So she got money from Walter through Louis, which was counterfeit. And she had then given it back to Bruce, who is now arrested for the third time. And somehow this convinces Hildy that we should get remarried. Like, it feels like the intent is... Hildy's going to be with Bruce, and then the fact that Walter is like, go, like, live your life, convinces her, oh, Walter's actually a good dude. But Walter's not actually a good dude. He's learned nothing. Like, he just arrested her fiancé multiple times. It's actually that she wanted him to fight for her, and this proves, the third arrest proves love. Arrest my fiancé once, shame on you. Get my fiancé arrested twice, shame on me. Get my arrest fiance arrested a third time it means you love me yeah that all makes sense so she is like crying it's like oh you really do care let's get married again and so walter's like let's go 
get married and we'll have our honeymoon wherever you want. And she says, Niagara Falls. And instead, on the way, there is a newsworthy strike that must be covered. So Hildy is basically like, well, I guess our honeymoon's off. And then I love the last line of Walter just saying, Albany, huh? I wonder if Bruce will put us up. Let me tell you, I would watch that movie. And I very much enjoyed the end because Hildy realizes that she loves journalism as much as she loves Walter. And they can just be partners in journalism and eventually get divorced again. Which That's what I was going to say. Later. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, Mark, do you find the romance of His Girl Friday believable? Um, I would say not really. The third yeah. arrest really pushes it over the edge for me. <laughs> right. So, I mean, at its core, like, if you have to make the case for it, His Girl Friday is about coworkers who respect each other's work a lot and sometimes butt heads, which, if sitcoms have told us anything, are a recipe for romance. I mean, that's true. But when they got married, it didn't work out very quickly. I mean, they were barely married. I think part of that, which we'll get into, I think, when we talk about if they'll stay together, but part of the difference is Hildy in the last marriage was trying to convince herself that she wanted a normal life. Like, she wanted the honeymoon. She wanted to settle down. But this time, she seems on board with the shenanigans of being a journalist in the Dark Age. And she's just as committed just as committed to it. Because she's the one that says, well, I guess we're going to cover the strike. That's a really good point. You got to learn to embrace the Dark Age. Right. So I think that it's not fully unbelievable. These are two people that clearly can only mesh with each other in some twisted sense. And it's the kind of thing where her relationship with Bruce seems fine, but is not particularly long-lived. So it doesn't feel totally unreasonable that she winds up back with this guy that she has a much longer relationship with. But it's also wild insane and he gets Bruce arrested three times. So it would definitely not be fully believable. Will, where would you rate this on our 10 point scale? So I think I've talked myself up to a six. I think a six sounds right. I agree. I think it's more believable than not. Do you think that Walter, Hildy, or Bruce is dateable? Um, Walter, no. He's very fun to watch in a movie, but I am suspicious of the methods he uses to get what he wants. It's the dark age, Will. Anything goes. So, I'm gonna say no there. Hildy, probably also no. She's the one that I'm most tempted to date. I think, uh... Brief romance would be fun, but I think that I am not at their level of commitment to journalism. It would be exhausting. It would be exhausting. And then Bruce is like the exact opposite, where I think it would be very boring to be with Bruce because he has no Bruce defining is too characteristics. Dull. Besides the fact that he looks like that handsome movie star, you know, uh, Ralph Bellamy. Apparently that one was ad-libbed. Yes. The studio chief at Columbia was not happy about that line and tried to cut it multiple times. Really? I think it's fun. Yeah. I also think it's fun. By the way, shout out to Columbia Pictures for failing to renew their copyright on this movie. So it's now in the public domain and there are lots of transfers available of wildly varying quality. Yeah. Thanks to, what was it? Digicom TV 
on Amazon Prime for the better transfer. Yeah, if you decide to watch this movie, which I recommend, there are two versions on Prime Video. One, like, has cover art and looks professional. And that one is much worse than the Digicom TV one that has no cover art. It's weird. Anyway, do you think that Hildy or Walter will stay together? Absolutely not. No. They might last longer this time, but they will eventually push each other's buttons enough that they leave. I'm not ruling out that they get back together after their second divorce. I think they will circle each other like comic book characters for the next hundred years. Yeah, I think that they will live forever and they will always be in each other's orbit, but they will not always be together. Now, Mark. Yes. The question I'm really interested in is, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? This is tough because the characters are two wacky journalists, a boring person and his mean mom, a corrupt mayor, a corrupt police chief, and only journalists in the Dark Ages. Um, let's be clear, there's also a murderer and Joe Pettibone and Molly Malloy. Uh, so I think- Or the waiter. I'm gonna go, ooh, the waiter's a good choice, but I was thinking Evangeline who is the blonde woman at the police station because she was very pretty and seems like a fun time. Okay, but she's like wrapped up in the crime world. Yeah, but I don't mind. Okay. We've only said that murder is bad on this podcast. We haven't fully established ourselves as anti-all crime. That's true. I just feel like we should have Mora here because she's our expert on how to be a criminal. That is true. We'll have to check in. Um, I think I am gonna go with the waiter. He seems pretty fun. He is fun, he puts up with the shenanigans, but he also seems to do his job well. Right. It feels like he knows how to exist in that world without being dominated by its chaos. Yes. A side of a quality waiter. Now, Mark, here's the most important question. Okay. Many of the films we've covered have been adapted into stage musicals. I'm wondering if you think His Girl Friday should be singing its way to Broadway. So I think that the only music writer that could possibly make this work is Sondheim because he can write fast lyrics of people talking over each other. Sure. Like the entire musical is at the speed of getting married today. Yeah, the whole musical. You have to take a clonopin after you watch it because you're so anxious. I think that it is just too many words to fit into a musical. It could be fun, but I think it would just be too stressful. Like, imagine all of this washing over you with frantic musical energy behind it. Look, you describing it is making me more into it. I think it could be fun, but I think I would get too anxious at a certain point. Well, His Girl Friday has not been adapted into a musical, but the front page has been. In 1982, there was a UK production of a musical called The Windy City that was based on the front page and ran for 250 performances, but was not terribly well-reviewed. Basically, people thought they made the story too sappy. I think that if you don't have all of the weirdness in the background, it will not work. I agree. You need to have a corrupt mayor. You need to have a murderer that for some reason people don't think is a murderer. Like the closest thing to romance should be whatever's going on with Molly Malloy, unless you're doing the His Girl Friday version. Right. All right. So I think that's about it for His Girl Friday, starring my third cousin, Rosalind Russell. Well, next week, we are going to be seeing another one of your favorite people as we take a look at the 1981 romantic comedy, Arthur. I had no idea what this movie was. Before we started recording, I went on Wikipedia, didn't read anything, scrolled down to the cast, saw Liza with a Z and said, sold. Yeah. 
Uh, I have never seen it, but I'm looking forward to it. This was a listener suggestion, so always good to send those in. Thanks, listeners. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from his girl Friday? I'm assuming framing your rival for various crimes is not terribly good advice. Well, I was going to say, I think I already gave my advice when I said, get your fiance arrested once, shame on you. Get my fiance arrested (laughs) twice, shame on me. Get my fiance arrested for a third time, yes, I will marry you. See, what I like about that is the middle one, the get my fiancé arrested twice, shame on me. Like, after you get my fiancé arrested once, at that point, I should be on the lookout, and it's my fault if it happens again. I should have been there to shut it down. Right. Uh, I don't don't think I can do better than that. I'm willing to leave it there. All right, there you go. Till next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye now. Bye. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard, and which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly he'll realize he's out of the net and want to kill me when she says, listen, thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. Don't just stand there. I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at another person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick up a christening. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear. Do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who may be ruining his life. You know what both of us be losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it. He said to see him Monday. But by Monday, I'll be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the halls, because I'm not